All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckadelics? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. That okay with you? Ricky Lee Jones is on the show. Um, she's a singer, a songwriter, musician, an artist who has been at it for over five decades. Um, I remember when that first Ricky Lee Jones album came out, and it was like, what is this? So cool. I remember watching her on Saturday Night Live. So fucking cool. She was so good. Uh, it's weird because she came up recently in the conversation with Katie Segal, and uh, she also has a memoir out, a new one, called Last Chance Texaco, so it seemed like a good time to talk to her. It was all heading that direction. She was in New Orleans when I talked to her. But man, she was a trip. I remember those records, man. I remember when she just was like, what is this? Where did she come from? What year? What generation? What galaxy? How is this okay? Because it was in the middle of a lot of other things going on that weren't that. Like her and Waits, man. The thing. So I was excited to talk to her. Look, man, Charles Grodin passed away. He was old and he had a good run. And he was one of the great, great comic actors. And it was sad. I just rewatched Midnight Run a few weeks ago. And I remember, I think we talked about it here, how hard it was to find uh, the original Heartbreak Kid with him in it. He was just such a unique, funny crank. And he could play straight, too. I mean, he was just, his presence was so specifically his. Oh, that, I'm looking at his filmography right now. I forgot. He was in Rosemary's Baby. He plays the second opinion doctor. Remember, like, a Dr. Sapistine's a great doctor. Catch-22, he was hilarious in that, as I recall. Heaven Can Wait, oh, my God. All the, Seems like old times. Chevy Chase, hilarious. He was great. The Lonely Guy, an unsung masterpiece, really. I don't know how to call it a masterpiece, but his performance in it as the guy on the part on the bench, great. Midnight Run, great. All those appearances he did on Letterman was great. I mean, he was just so fucking funny. And The Heartbreak Kid is one of my favorite fucking movies. And he's been in it. He's been in it for a long time. And he was always so consistent and so consistently unique and unto himself, whether it was dramatic or comedic. He was a like a defining guy for me. I used to love seeing him. I watched some clips yesterday, just a brief encounter, just stuff of him on talk shows, and so uniquely fucking hilarious. And he had a great career. I don't know if he had a great life. Don't know him. From what I do know, I'm sure it was always challenging, but that might just be a character. I don't know, but he will be missed. He was, uh, he was, he was one of the, he was one of the great funny fuckers for sure. We lost somebody else this week. Uh, Paul Mooney passed away. I don't know the details on that. I know he had been battling with some illnesses, and he was um, he's a very influential guy. He was uh, he was Richard Pryor's very good friend back in the day, co-wrote uh, uh, JoJo Dancer with Pryor, I think worked on some of Pryor's uh, hours with him. They were buddies. He was a comedy store regular. He was a legend at the comedy store. I mean, when I was a doorman, the thing about Mooney is that he always did those late spots. You know, it was almost like the second to the last spot, or it was always late. And all the guys, you know, the the, the heavy cats, Kennison, 
you know, most of the comics who were trying to push the envelope would creep in to watch Mooney from the back of the room because back then the the store at that hour, it sort of, it kind of spreads out, kind of lightens up and Mooney would just hold court, kind of. Not hold court, not teach a class, but just do Mooney. Mooney had this like aggressive charm and an incredible ability to talk about race in, in a confrontational and provocative way. But for some reason, he was able, you were able to process it. And he didn't fuck around, man. And just watching him do that stuff, do that work. As a door guy back then, it was, it was kind of amazing. No one owned the stage like that guy. And he, was, he went relatively, he was relatively obscure for many years. Many years until Chappelle kind of made him, brought him to the forefront. I tell a story about Mooney because he was a button pusher, man. And I featured for him in Sacramento. I don't even know what year it could have been. But I was the middle act, and he was the he was the headliner at the punchline. I I must have been living in San Francisco. Is that possible in the nineties, early nineties, maybe? But I don't know that I fully understood the power of Mooney. You don't really understand the power of Mooney until you see him. You work a week with him, and you get to watch him do two hours in front of a primarily white audience in Sacramento, and. He would stretch out, like on the Wednesday or Thursday, he had all the time in the world on the late show, stretch out. I mean, take it up to closing time. Couple hours, man, just going at it. And I couldn't understand why. It wasn't like it, like it, he was necessarily killing, but I believe what he did was if you don't think you're a racist, he's going to find it in you. You know, he's like N-word this, N-word that, whitey this, whitey that. And come hour two of that, I think that what he liked to do was just get those white people right at the edge of it and keep going until they heard in their mind and in their heart or actually out of their mouth to who they're sitting with say, when is this N-word going to shut up? I get it. I get it. He's black. I get it. I think his job and part of what he did was push the buttons for you to be introduced to your little racist. He was something else, man. I haven't seen him in a long time, and I'm sorry I didn't get to interview him, but rest in peace. Paul Mooney, take a break. Charles Grodin, gonna miss you guys. It's weird, even though people may not be in the public eye much after a certain age. You know, what happens when they go is you reflect on the place they had in your life the place they had for years in your life, even if you haven't seen them lately. You just always assume they were here. And they are here, and they will be here for you if you want to go engage with them. But now it's different. Before they were here, and they were here. Now they're here, and they're gone. Hmm. Ricky Lee Jones. Her new memoir, Last Chance Texaco, is available... Uh, wherever you get books. And if you want to hear Ricky Lee tell her own story, she reads the audiobook version. Um, she was in New Orleans, the magical dark city. This is me talking to Ricky Lee Jones. Hey. Hey, Mark. How are you, Ricky Lee Jones? 
<laughs> I'm good. The real good. Ricky Lee Jones. That's right. The real thing. I, you are the real thing. I can't believe I'm talking to you. I can't believe <laughs> it. I remember that first record. <laughs> that was like, yeah. That was like a, a world changing event. Were you like 12 when it came out or I don't 14? know. What was that, 79? Yeah. Uh, no, 70, I was like um, 16, 17 years old. It was a big deal. It was a, it was a really big deal, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was like no one had ever heard anything like it before in the mainstream world. <laughs> All that's left is us to remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, the songs are still there. Mm -hmm. That's the weird thing about music is that you can always go back and hear it, right? Yeah. It's still floating around. I see music almost architecturally, so they're exactly the same rooms they ever were. You can go into them and move about. Can you go to that place in time in your mind? Or is it just, uh, you know, you just have a feeling, you know? When I perform, or, uh, probably when I sing, but yeah. definitely when I perform, it's exactly the same as it ever was. Oh, really? It's the same as it ever was. Is that good or bad? It's dramatic. Really? Like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. It, it's almost it is almost like an intentional PTSD where you you are reliving exactly, <laughs> exactly it, for for the audience's benefit <laughs> and for mine. I mean, it you know. It, so this thing happens where only my um, vibraphonist Mike Dillon knows about this because he'll look over at me as it's happening. He can sense it. But when I'm at the piano playing the songs from Pirates, mm. I guess this is what PTSD is. But mm. I, I begin to have this almost hallucinatory experience where the sound becomes Doppler and um, it's visceral, difficult. And uh, it's been going on for a couple of years now. So I just roll with it, but it's intense. Oh, wow. So like specifically because that was... There was a lot of emotions in that record. It was a breakup record too, right? It was. But the music has, I don't know, you know, I, I've come to think that the songs are filled with our intention or there's something living that goes into some of this music. Yeah. And and uh, so maybe some of the the tears of the time, but something that long that lives long past that sorrow. Right. Yeah. There's a, well, I, I've always thought about that as somebody who does performing, but you know, I'm a comedian is that, uh, you, you know, no one really goes back too often to old comedy bits, but music seems to evolve with people as they grow up, you know, and it takes on different meaning through their lives. And, you know, some of it's nostalgic and some of it is unexplainable, but, but once it's in there, it's in there. That's totally true, except that I sometimes go back and watch Richard Pryor. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there's something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's something, it's not just that it's funny. There's something about living through the first time a comedian said these things right. and crossed those barriers that's right. thrilling to see again. Oh, yeah. But there, and also with comedy, I guess, not unlike music, but I, I think music is more consistent in its magic. Like I could, you can listen to right. a song four times in a row, really, if if you feel like it. You, you can't do that with a joke, really. But but there are certain expressions that certain comics make. There are certain moments in, in stand-up or in comedy that you could watch a few times. But you don't yeah. want to do it too much because you want it to keep working. So you got to watch it, get the laugh, 
shelve it for a few years. No, you said the word. It's magic. That that thing in music that it is, right? heals us and transports us. Well, I mean, I listened to We Belong Together yesterday because I knew I was going to talk to you, and it made me fucking choke up. <laughs> and I didn't. And I didn't even live through whatever you lived through. But it speaks to something. Yeah. Is that the only record that you have it with, that PTSD? Yeah. Well, it's all the things at the piano. So once it starts, it bleeds into everything at the piano. Oh. I've wondered, is the piano in a place in the theater where the sound travels uh, <laughs> in a weird place? Why does it happen at the piano and never at the guitar at stage front? Um there's a tune or two on piano from the first record, but I think it might just be Pirates. I don't know. I might have told you more than I should have. <laughs> Why? Well, what could happen? You know, one of the worst things you can do is tell people that you're uh, unstable. Oh. People want stability, especially... You know, if you're going to perform for them, that's why I loved Frank Sinatra because I could depend on <laughs> Frank opening his arms and embracing us and taking us exactly where we want to go and then dropping us back off again. That's very interesting. What the audience does not want to know that I've decided to turn left and I don't know where I'm going, but come on with me. Well, I, but see, I don't know that they would have noticed that or w if they listen to this, uh, they'll no, be looking they for it, but they won't notice. But I mean, I, that's an interesting thing that you say, you know, because I was thinking about you and I was thinking about the influence you wielded at a different at a time, you know, for for women, for songwriters. And and that's the, like I am uncomfortable with certain people because I don't feel that they are stable, but they're geniuses and their music is great. But I have a hard time listening to them because I feel the instability. Sure. Do you know? Like, I think I, I'm pretty stable now. You and seem I think like I'm it. pretty consistent on stage. Because yeah. I've been inconsistent and it didn't bring me any satisfaction. Some of the exciting things about, one of the exciting things about living a lifetime as a performer is that you can insist that some of your diehard fans go with you wherever you want to go. Well, you insist it by going and seeing who comes with you. And I did that, and um, I, I don't regret it. I mean, I love exploring music, but it's difficult to market someone who keeps changing what it is they do. We're in popular music, and um, yeah. it's, it's that part's been hard. But I love all the different things that I've gone to do. And I love Pirates but it's not my favorite child. Well, yeah, because it, it you, you know it came from uh, it, it came from uh, pain, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, you've never. It doesn't see. It doesn't strike me that you're inconsistent emotionally on stage. I mean, making different musical choices or taking risk. I mean, you're you're a fucking pro. So like, you know, it's not like you know you're gonna lose your mind in the middle of a song. I di I did once. <laughs> Was it, wait, in Germany? No, that was, they lost their minds, not me. Um, I had this thing happen with just too much pressure where I thought there was a giant leprechaun laying out on the, on one of the seats. And I, I did, I thought that damn leprechaun again. Oh my <laughs> God. Out there. 
when I went off stage and I have to collect myself, somebody said, no, there is a guy. He, he is laying, he's laying across <laughs> all the seats. It was just funny what I did with it. Was, oh, there's a magical being uh, when, uh, watching me. When was that? 1983 at the Universal Amphitheater. No drugs involved. Um, no, no drugs. Just too much pressure. From uh, be, was that like uh, that was that on the third record? That was the third record, and uh, it was promoting the magazine, which was I'd done this theater piece, um, exorcising the demons of addiction. These stories my father had told me about the war, his scorpion story, and and, and telling a, a a story to myself about what had led me to. Um, to that table with that needle, I made up a character called Gloria in the Kitchen. So it was a very emotional and wonderful piece. Yeah. But the manager I had kept booking me in big music venues like the Amphitheater. And he w wouldn't book me in any theaters where I, we, the audience and I would have been more comfortable. So I was struggling um, with what I, I wanted to go into theater or into acting or spread my wings to write for movies or something. And, um, and I think in this show, I just had too much on the line. I was thinking this show will take me where I want to go. And that was a lesson hard learned because no show is more valuable than another. No show takes you where you want to go. You have to get this Zen thing about whether or not, whether you're in Pittsburgh or New York City, every show has has an um, equilibrium. And no show serves a larger purpose ever. Hmm. Or you'll, or I will mess it up if it does. And that was a lesson I learned. Well, it, well, it also sounds like you're on the precipice of a lot of things personal, personally, but also <laughs> wanting to you know branch out your creativity that you know you were seeing something bigger than music as as a possibility and and being not feeling secure in an environment where you wanted to take certain risks is you know a little bit uh it's a, a little bit terrifying that's right and and also in 1983 so i'd had a really big and wonderful rise and by 83 i think i felt i was falling um, mm. my guy at Warner Brothers, Bob Regeer, was dying. And he was a great interpreter of, of, how, of how to sell an act to the public. He did myself, Laurie Anderson, The Sex Pistols and Prince. Those mm. were his. Wow. And when he died, all those acts kind of um, Wobbled. Um, fluttered in midair. Yeah, for a little while. Uh -huh. So with the passing of him... And um, and the Madonna dance stuff rising and all the hope of this intelligent, wonderful music coming from women just going down the drain. I think I, I just went, it's over, it's over. And you got to move to another uh, line of work or you're, or you're fucked, you know? Yeah. This is my own insecurity. It probably had a little bit to do with what was going on. But, right. Um, the fact that I survived and kept recreating myself and hung in there so that now I'm 66 years old and we're talking about it means I found a way to do it. But 
I could feel myself falling from the very top and there's nothing I could do. Well, I mean, I can't imagine the pressure of that, of being, I mean, you were on the cover of Rolling Stone a couple of times. Those records were, were huge and your image was huge and people knew who you were and you were very unique and still are. But I mean, to be at that level of success and, and visibility and to see the cultural tastes or whatever's being pushed uh, change so dramatically has got to be, you know, horrendous, we, you know, daunting and terrifying. It was hard. <laughs> Yeah, because like, I mean, because then like it's one of those things like I'm fortunate as a performer to never have gotten very famous and I just kind of chip away at my own thing. (laughs) Is this it? This the one's going to break me, Ricky? (laughs) (laughs) This is going to take me over the top. But even I I still feel that pressure a little bit, but it's hard to just say like I do what I do and I'm happy with it and I've got my people and I'm going to keep doing it. And that's that. That's right. (laughs) That's right. You know? But I didn't have my people. And um, and I think I was in a long, uh, you know, I hate to harken back to this, but I think I was in a long free fall after my breakup with weights. Yeah. It happened in such a, a moment as my, as my career was going, whoa, that broke. And so I just didn't have um, a strong enough, um, self-worth, I guess. Sense or, of self. Or I'm yeah. one of those women who just loved or loves or loved that person as much as myself. Mm. And without them in my story, him in my story, I just didn't know how to write it. And I figured it out after a couple years, but um, they were crucial years in a career, you know. The hard part is that I judge myself. And so sometimes you read a shitty thing, some stranger writes, that doesn't matter. I I judge myself. Well, it, it only matters if they tell you exactly what you think of yourself. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then it's like, oh, they know. Um, well, yeah. let's, I mean, let's talk about that because I don't, I like, it, it sounds like uh, at the, the amphitheater, so you had gotten you'd kick drugs. Is that what that part of that was? I had. Yeah. And I had a lot of guilt about having taken drugs when I could have, you know, mm. been the, what, what they were calling me, like the girl next door, but I was also really <laughs> sexy and any way you want to go, that's where I was. And I, I just, you know, so I had a lot of guilt about disappointing so many people that I actually knew much less the concept of, of fans who hadn't really entered my circle yet. So I was ashamed. Well, well, that's in, well I mean, yeah, I, I mean, hiding that, that thing is, is hard, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but what, so where does it start? Where are you now? Are you living, you're not living out here anymore? I'm in New Orleans. Where are you living? Glendale. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's nice up there now. <laughs> I love it. I love it here. Yeah, I, I'm not. Good. I'm okay where I live. But New Orleans. I just talked to a. Who did I just talk to from New Orleans? I just talked to a kid yesterday who grew up in New Orleans. So you you you're down there all the time now. This that's your home. Yeah, yeah. I've been living here seven or eight years, and I lived here for a while in the '80s. So I've got to see the city in in little bits, like slices of Earth as it changed, and. Uh, I love it here. It's good for me. It's a really big little town, and, and it's it doesn't a musical take town. very long. Well, 
it doesn't take very long to travel. Mm. And that's in L.A. If you're going to go anywhere, you got to commit to 45 minutes at least. So the music thing, it it does have an intrinsic music that grows up out of it. And, yeah. the, and the youngsters are carrying tubas and brass instruments <laughs> yeah. and to and from school. But the other yeah. thing that's happening are... Young people are coming from out of town, attracted to this traditional jazz idea, and they're creating a new weird music. Mm. I saw two girls singing, you know, uh, like Skylark or something, and one of them had a saw. One was singing with the saw while a traditional trio backed them up. Hmm. And and it was very wonderful for the first song. And then it was like, eh, this is not working. But I was thrilled that they're trying and creating new real music. That's exciting. It's very exciting. And it's nice that someone's playing the saw again. You just don't, there's not enough of that. <laughs> and not, not with traditional <laughs> ballads either. So. so the first time you went to uh, New Orleans, was that when you did the song with Dr. John? No, Dr. John... Well, I don't know if he sent me here, but he sent me to visit people here when I came. Mm. Um, That song with Dr. John was 89 Mm. or 88. Um, But I came here in 80, uh, 79 when I first performed here and then returned to visit uh, the next year and stayed. When you say uh, when he he told you people to go see there, was that... (laughs) That was the drug time. <laughs> he, he set you up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Dr. John, I think, was a little notorious for that in a, in a good and bad way. So, but you come from where? Where do you come from? You mean, where, where did I hail from? Yeah, where did you grow up? Yeah, was it Chicago? I grew up in Chicago. Well, no, I was born there. We left there when I was four and oh. moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Really? Phoenix? Mm-hmm. Wow. There's like an underground railroad from Chicago to Phoenix directly. Because dropping of the... off waiters and waitresses right out of the restaurant. <laughs> the desert floor. I, thought, I thought you meant for the air. I know there was a while there were people who had tuberculosis or sensitive lungs would move to Phoenix. They sent their sinuses to Arizona. That's right. But you like I, I was going through the book and I landed on a few things. But I mean, it seems like you come from a a a a, a very show busy kind of past. Well, I come from an American past, the the vaudevillians. And as I went to write the book, I just although I feel like emotionally we are we tell a universal story. But sure. I my family's decidedly American, you know, traveling yeah. up and down Route sixty six vaudeville chicago the middle of the desert so that was the story that was where i one of the seeds i started with so i'm going to tell this story of an american family but it's interesting to me that the type of music that it seems that you know was part of your family uh is is really the because i think your music is uniquely american and you can feel the history of certainly the early records i mean most of the records all the way through back to you know, what your family comes from. That's right. That's right. My grandfather was a vaudevillian, and um, my Uncle Bob was an extraordinary jazz guitarist. And I couldn't help but think that he must have learned this from the grandfather, mm. who was a ukulele player. My father, a jazz singer, trumpet player, yeah. artist uh, uh, all around, who taught me to sing... I also listened to the records he listened to. But the main thing about my singing, besides not much of a vibrato, 
and a tone that's not really so different than when I am speaking. Yeah. I don't make it. So I have that. But he always came in behind the beat. Mm. And that's the main thing about me is that it's, that a rock singer is right on the beat, right? Yeah. Um, there she stood in the street. We're on the beat. So, but the jazz singer will, will be sitting in the back of the beat. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the, you know, uh, that free song because like I listened to the cover of Bad Company. I love that free. Well, I mean I you co- you covered Bad Company by Bad <laughs> Company, right? Yeah, That's I did. A- <laughs> I did. And, I, and it's funny, like because that that song you you can sing behind the beat on that one. Yeah. That's right. And I guess he was a little bit jazzy himself. I also covered Rebel Rebel acoustically. No, I love that. I like I like to go wherever I want to go. And um, one of the reasons I did Bad Company is because when I would... When I was on uh, on stage and I'd introduce the song, people would laugh. So I thought, wow, you know, this is so unexpected that Ricky Lee Jones would do Bad Company. I think I'm going to record it. <laughs> so I'd like to do a Bad Company. Though. But it's weird because, oh. like, you know, there's a snobbery around certain, you know, bands yes, there is. that I grew up with. I mean, I've got all the Bad Company albums. I'll still listen to some Paul Rogers. He's fucking great. But, you know, like if you don't tell people, they're not the wiser because they don't even know. They don't know bad company from bad company. Yeah. I don't know where, it's, where the snobbery was going. I guess it's, it is snobbery, but it's more that marketing thing where. That's true. Where That's we've true. been so over marketed to, mm. you do this kind of music, they That's do that right. kind of music. That's right. And if you blend them, I'm going to be embarrassed. It's like you're naked. Or, or even if you listen to them, like you, 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 yes. people get an idea of a band. Before they know anything about it, they dismiss it because of how it's branded. Right. Exactly. I felt like I suffered from that a little bit, Sure, everybody does. But I mean, like, in my mind, how could you not love ACDC? Who would would judge (laughs) ACDC? But that's just me. (laughs) Or Bad Company, even. Why do you like ACDC? But but he's a a good guitar player. I could never scream. So, you know, Janis Joplin, ACDC, all that, that was harder. I love Janis, but it all comes from Led Zeppelin, right? Uh, And that guy, even though he kind of screamed, he always screamed in a melody. He's like the top of the pyramid of that. He's, He's so great. And I love Led Zeppelin. But all of the followers of Led Zeppelin, from Guns N' Roses to all of it, to me, were, I can relate to I get it. So you're in Phoenix. You grow up in Phoenix in the hot desert in that sort of weird land of strip malls. And and, uh, I know Phoenix pretty well. I I had family in Phoenix for years. And, you know, what... What drives you out here? I mean, how? What are you doing in Phoenix? Are you singing? Are well, you... my family moved there when I was a little girl. I was five, so I grew up there. But it, did was there a point where you knew you had to get out? Were the '60s happening? What was blowing your mind? You know, <laughs> they um, they moved all the time. They oh. moved. They moved every year, every other year. By the time I left school, I had gone to eleven schools, and. Um, when I ran away from home in 1969, my family had disintegrated. My mother had left my dad, and my dad had become violent. And um, so I caught a plane to the to be a part of 
1969 yeah. and hitchhike up and down the the highway and be a hippie and be a grown-up. Yeah. I really wanted out of that teenage outfit. <laughs> yeah. How old were you? 14. You ran away when you were 14? Was your dad a drunk or what? My dad was mm. an alcoholic. That's what we like to call him. Yes. He was, he was, he drank all his life. And, you know, this is hard because I, I want to protect the, you know, I can hear my mother going, you're telling too much. I want to protect the dignity of the sure, family. Sure. And that's one of the things the book did well, which was to say, People are complicated, yeah. and nobody is evil, right. and nobody is great. This was a really bad thing he did, but he didn't always do bad things. Right. There was a bad month for him and me, and I took off. But but two months later, he saved my life. So parents are complicated, and mine especially were. What, wait, what happened? He He followed me. So I ran away from home. And I'm traveling up Highway 1, and my dad is on my trail. I don't know how he found the people I stayed with in San Diego, but he did. And from them, they said, I think she's going to Santa Cruz. So he drove to Santa Cruz, and he's on my tail. And when I was arrested in Sunnyvale, which then was just a big desert, um, and taken to juvie, my father was nearby in the Pontiac Catalina <laughs> looking for his daughter. So he uh, he rescued me. What did they pick you up for? Hitchhiking. Uh, they, you know, I was hitchhiking, and they decided they thought I was a minor. So yeah, they and you were, me. right? Yeah, I was. Never made it to San Francisco. Oh, <laughs> never made it to the summer of love. No. So you went back to Phoenix? I went to Olympia, Washington. Oh, my they, God. Uh, Your dad ended up there? No, my mom had gone there. That's pretty up and there. And so we stayed. <laughs> well, it used to be anyway. We stayed for my high school years. Mm. When did you start singing? I always sing. Yeah. I always sing, yeah, since I was little. So what did you like about my music when you first heard it? Who did you think I was? Well, I just thought that there was like there was some sort of timelessness to it. And I, you know, and I was, uh, you know, I had somehow gotten a box of records from uh, a, there was a record store next to where I worked in high school that that was primarily an R&B shop. And so all the rock records and anything that wasn't R&B, they put into a box. And I was given a box of records that had Waits's um, Nighthawks at the Diner in it. And like, I'd never heard anything like that. And it was, you know, fairly kind of classic mode of kind of, you know, lounge singing. And then like sort of uh, that sort of primed the pump somehow. And I remember that, you know, I, I didn't know that you two were together, but I put that, that there was a scene that was happening and there was a, a type of, uh, there was a type of timeless kind of like a uh, 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 jazz music that was accessible that and also sexy and and you know the cigarettes and the sort of the idea of of people staying up late and eating french fries and you know the whole thing it it, it all played through you too i think so i mean so it was sort of like an aspiration like you know like there's people out there doing this you know so the reason i wrote the book besides wanting to correct other people's versions of my life that that recognizing that if I didn't write something, that's all that would be left when I, when I was gone, was, the, I, was because I know my, the stories of my family are extraordinary stories. Yeah. 
and that I could tell my story better if I placed it among their stories. That there be some redemption for the grandfather and the grandmother and the, and the questionable deaths and the questionable behaviors. And if we tell the story, if we show the whole arc of their lives. Do you live in a, tra- do you live in a train station? I'm pretty much. <laughs> you can hear it. You know, and it's, I got a little aluminum roof, a tin roof next to me. It's really New Orleans. I'm four houses from the, you know, this is where they come to, the train comes, it goes back, it comes, it goes back. This is where they attach new cars okay. onto the train. Okay. So it's, it's been very active uh, all night long. Okay. I dreamed I was singing. <laughs> and it was the train. Ooh. <laughs> So, okay, so you wanted to put yourself in context with the story of your family and their their sort of journey uh, in America, you know, for better or for yeah. worse, uh, you know, all That's the way right. back to, you know, your 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 grandfather, your great grandfather's store through the music, through the burlesque. That's right. Uh, and you wanted to place your narrative within the narrative of, of the struggle of your family. Because it's a chance for me to make a great or good piece of art for the first time because um, I've never written a book. So, you know, when you first met me and I debuted, it was so exciting. And now I've been around 40 years. There's no way I can introduce myself new to it with any kind of art except a book. Mm. So we can talk about the book as if we've never done it before. And... Um, I just knew that that was the only way I could possibly talk about myself without being like a cliche. I can't hear any memoir that doesn't say he or she overcame drugs. Like, all right, are we just, that's a given. They, we all are overcoming drugs. Yeah. There's an opiate <laughs> epidemic. Everybody's overcoming drugs. Yeah. And, and whatever thing that we have to overcome. But what's unique about my story it is also what's universal in everybody's story, that they're good and bad and the uniqueness of the vaudevillians and the fact that my family moved every every 27 minutes to a new house and I never understood why. The violence that I witnessed and overcame and this, um, so I know what, what I learned that I, I do want to share. Mm. This um, writer named Bill Flanagan said, Ricky Lee Jones loses her, or I hope I'm paraphrasing, loses her virginity in a, in a utility shed outside of a house. And she walks out and says, what a dream I had, dressed in organdy, clothed in crinoline. And that was the first time I really saw a mirror. That's exactly who I am. No matter what the circumstances are, I'm living this wonderful life made of music and lyrics I've heard. I always do and always have. It protects me and lifts me and saves me. And that's what the book, writing the book, showed me. Wow, that's like beautiful. Yeah. I I recently talked to another uh, woman songwriter recently who who actually has a a disassociative disorder and, and the music is another plane entirely to her that she you know, is free from trauma in. I could see, I could understand that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to express what, where music is for me and what it is, but, but it sure is a safe 
yeah. a safe place to go. That's it, that's a, it's a beautiful way to put it, and I can feel that. I mean, you know, even if I sing a song or play a guitar or whatever, I mean, I you I it's a meditative place. But it's also interesting to me that part of the incentive was like because I you know I've been sober a, a long time and embracing the history of the problem, but also embracing the lives that surround it without judgment is is a unique approach. So because then you at least get delivered here with an explanation that's not pathological, it just is. That's right. But along that path in writing this, because you wrote it alone, you didn't, you know, you didn't write it with yeah. somebody else because you're a writer, you know, your songs are, are, are stories, a lot of them. Yeah. You know, with full, you know, with full narratives. So like, as soon as you put a pen to paper or you start typing about your family or your experience, you, you, you're sort of reintroducing yourself to yourself. Many of the stories I've told myself many, many years, they are mythological in shape and size. Which ones in, in particular? I, well, so, well, the father and mother stories. Right, sure. Mythological. The creation myths. Some of the, yeah. Some of the stories that are huge i didn't put in the book because they're too terrible mm. i put in one terrible thing because i wanted everybody to have a good journey mm. <laughs> and good trip. you know most women are molested or somebody tries to hurt them or i don't know anybody who's totally escaped that but i've been people have tried to kidnap and kill me more than once walking down the street and i thought if i put that in that's going to tilt the weight of the, that causes people to think, did that really happen? Are all the things that will happen? I'll just include one. And, uh, and the, the one where the federales come and, and I get away. It's an incredible story. Um, so there are private stories that are mythological in, in their shape that were in the early versions of the book that, that as I shaped it and shaped it, I thought, you don't need to tell everything. And you and you must protect the reader so they can have a wonderful journey. And that was what I did. Without necessarily, you know, lying or or or, or avoiding anything. You're just picking the ones that will That's right. uh, you know, not stop them and break their heart too early. That's exactly right. A pretty <laughs> bowl of fruit. <laughs> a, 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 I picked it all. Yeah, so a slightly damaged <laughs> bowl of fruit. But pretty. You know, a lot of people have been saying to me, your childhood was so hard. But I've never thought of my childhood as hard. I thought of my brother's accident as hard. But children normalize everything. Yeah, and sure. We, I don't think many of us go, my, my life was hard. Your life is the life you've lived, and it's normal. Compared to what was it hard? And, and, and oddly, you know, it, it is normal to the degree that all humans experience tragedy experience death experience you know violence most of them i i mean it's just it, it it's life you know what i mean yeah that's right what happened to your brother my brother had a terrible motorcycle accident a devastating accident when i was 10 and uh and my parents fell apart this led to this alcoholism and violence and my mother and so this family that had been pressed together and hopeful they they, they weren't actually that well but but we were a family disintegrated after his accident that's what happened and is he alive he's alive 
Yes, he had a, you know, he lost a leg and he had a lot of brain damage. Mm. He had to learn to speak and use his body again. He was a football player. So there was so much mourning and grief for what might have been. It was very hard for anybody to go, all right, well, that's not going to be, but something else will be. Um, Mm. And it was made worse because I had a premonition about the accident a few days before it. And I told my brother and my mother about it. So when the accident happened, it was really hard for me. You know, even though I knew I didn't cause it, I couldn't help but think that if I hadn't have followed the rabbit down the rabbit hole of the premonition that that somehow it might not have happened oh my god so that was hard that's a big burden for a 10 year old yeah when do you decide what makes you decide to sort of move to california what was the beginning of that because that seems like the the rebirth there from this childhood well i i wanted to you know when i ran away to california well the all the music is there and the hippies are there and the acid is there and the communes are there. So I ran away almost every summer. And then when I was 16, my mother let me go. And um, on one of my trips, I met (laughs) this guy named Mark Vaughn in uh, Seal Beach and some, a guy from the Weathermen and all kinds of interesting characters. But the friend from Mark Vaughn, the friend Mark Vaughn from Seal Beach, I ended up moving in with, in Venice, California, in 1972, when it was still empty. There was a synagogue at one end with people with tattoos on their arms, old men and women who'd sit. And at this end were black men playing congas. There was one place of business open and they sold hot dogs, a couple of female entrepreneurs. And it was the beginning of life for me, um, living in Venice at that time. I I remember it so beautifully. And by the time I left, when I was 22, you know, the outside was moving in, but it it was a wonderful moment. And that's where you started to uh, kind of come into your own musically? You know, when I first started, I wasn't very good at all. I wanted to be, but I'd always sang, but I was a terrible songwriter. And um, I gravitated towards really depressed songs like Loudon Wainwright, <laughs> Old Lady Blues and stuff. But w- when I decided to write a story about somebody I'd never met doing something I'd never done, which was easy money, I hit upon something far bigger than I could have ever done if I just talked about myself. Right. So in creating fiction, I was able to tell my story and be funny and smart and and that's how I've that's how I talk about myself. You know, it's easy to make it up. You just sit and watch people. Right. And <laughs> see what's going on and and take it home and make up your own story. And that's that started happening in Venice. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and and what how does it sort of evolve from there? Were you did you have a who were you working with in Venice? Did you have a band? Did you have Oh a- no. That was a really bad time for me. I was working at a at a coffee place by the bus stop. I'd make about twenty five cents, thirty cents per person in tips. Ugh. Come home with seven dollars or something. Yeah. My mom would send me five bucks to get through the month. So at that in living in that one room place I'd save enough to go get a cup of coffee 
And then I'd I'd sit and and sit there as long as I could, drinking that coffee and and writing. How'd you get discovered? I mean, how where were you? How'd that go? Let's see. Well, I wrote Easy Money, and I started working with this songwriter named Alfred Johnson. Have you heard of him? No. He's a guy about town. Oh no, I don't know. He's a, uh, he was a young black singer songwriter who liked. I like to tell this story because he liked. Buffalo Springfield. And I liked Marvin Gaye. He wasn't interested in Marvin Gaye. I wasn't, I liked Buffalo. But so we came through cultural doors that were generally forbidden on racial terms. Hmm. Wouldn't, you wouldn't, he wouldn't have a Buffalo Springfield record in his home. He had to hear it from somebody else. Right. And I heard Marvin Gaye on the jukebox at the at the pool hall where I was. So we met in the middle of this wonderful amalgamation of American music mm. coming through all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. And we wrote Company and Weasel, uh, The Bridge and Weasel and the White Boys Cool. And when we started to write together, I was also homeless at the time, sleeping on people's couches. Something began to happen, and easy money. Um, so my friend Ivan Alls knew Lowell George, and he called Lowell George and said, "I got this song. I think uh, you should hear." And Lowell came over a day or two later, brought his little Sony recorder, and recorded me singing "Easy Money." He came back one week later with the reel to reel of the, not him singing on it, but just the track, the musical track. He said, this is gonna be my single. Just like that, in one week, from there to there. Well, to have a great songwriter say, oh, yes. you're the songwriter, I'm gonna, you little unknown girl there. Yeah. <laughs> was, was pretty, I thought, if nothing else ever happens to me, this happened. And it will always be this, that, that Lowell said he was going to do my song. And from there, good luck, good luck, good luck just kept coming. Was, how, was Lowell uh, a sweet guy? So sweet. Yeah. So sweet. Yeah, those like, <laughs> I listen to those first couple of Little Feet records sometimes. They're really amazing. He's so charming. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it just took off, huh? So I don't know why, but even though he recorded the song and it and it was hopeful, we were driving around together in the canyon. It was like I was being born and it was a very sad time. I was crying a lot. I was because I think a possible new future was trying to be born and it was. How do I get there? I can feel it. Oh, wow. How do I get out of being poor and yeah. ending up a waitress? How do I get there? And um, the only way to get there is to write a great song. You got to go write a song. How do I write a great song? I don't know. So in one week, I wrote Last Chance Texaco and Chucky's in Love by sheer force of will. When I wrote the lyric to Last Chance Texaco, I only know these many chords. I, so I said to myself, you have to write it in a key you've never written in. You gotta try to go somewhere you've never gone. So I, 
I hit an F sharp. Yeah. Who plays F sharp? Yeah. I don't know about you, but that hurts my fingers. Bar, it's, it's hard a, to play It's a bar chord, yeah. Without a capo, it's tough. The song was waiting there. Oh. As soon as I played the F sharp, yeah. Yeah. it took me <laughs> up and down and yeah. delivered me there. Wow. So that's a little bit of magic. Yeah. Yes. So, But at that point, you knew Chucky and that crew? Yeah, yeah. I did, and they were real hot and cold, you know. They'd see me, you know, they're very sexist, misogynist guys. That's a given. And they all hang out together and they love each other. And girls aren't welcome. Where were they? We're hanging out they have at... a short skirt on, in front of the troubadour. Oh, okay. <laughs> Who was in that crew? Paul Brody. Yeah. Bodie Brody. Bodie. Yeah. But, and Rick Dubov, who is also called Bebop. Uh-huh. The manager of the Troubadour had long hair, but I don't remember his name. Yeah. Chucky Wise, Tom Waits, and those are the five guys I remember. There might have been others, but those were And the... you would go over there to see shows, or like, how'd you hook up with those guys? I think I just, because I was lonely, so I'd just go over and sit at the bar or stand around on the outside of them and, and see if anybody talked to me. And sometimes they'd be friendly, and sometimes they were like, Get the fuck out of here, you know. Who are you? What's your name again? Really unkind. So um, depending on um, how they felt, what was happening in their lives, they treated me accordingly. Did they know your music or they just knew you as this girl that hung no. out? That's right. I was a cool looking girl. I wore a beret yeah, and yeah. fuchsia gloves. I only wore 1940s clothes. So I was noticeable, I, I imagine, but... Um, but a weirdo, no doubt. <laughs> and what were the shows at the Troubadour at that point? There's a lot of punk rock, Black Flag, and oh, really? some heavy metal guys in big, uh, big boots and hair. So it was a mixture of they were fighting each other out for the stage. So this is like '77 yeah. or '76. Sure. Wow. Seventy, yeah, seventy. Well, seventy-eight. Wow. Um, Levi and the Rockettes, Circle Jerks, Minutemen, Black Flag. I remember the black flag sign a lot, and um, and and then heavy metal guys that probably you know came up and went down just as fast. A lot of kids. Well, that's so wild because that's when that's when you guys are doing your thing. It's antithetical. That's right. It's the opposite. That's right. It is. It's a different. It it's like it, you, those people are kind of like plunging forward into a violent unknown, and you guys are going into the past. And you say going into, I think of it as a thread from the past. Like he's he's coming out of the past like a character out of a Damon Runyon story. Who, Tom? I'm coming out like in my mother's makeup. And, you know? <laughs> but whatever it was, we found more solace and inspiration in the past right. than what was happening there. Yeah. Yeah. And so how long was it before you and Tom started hanging out? Well, we had a brief liaison at some point, and then um, 77 or 78. That's a nice way to I, put it. I'm not it. sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then about eight or nine months later, we kind of start around the time things started going well for me, say the summer before I got signed or after I got signed, we dated kind of, then we broke it off. Then in the fall again, we dated and then we broke it off. We we're we we're on and off again. Always it was hard for for years. <laughs> but, 
for a couple of years. Mm. Not very long, really. And this is when he's like uh, like doing those first few records? Like Blue... No, this is Blue Valentine. Mm. When I met him, he just finished Foreign Affairs, mm. I think. And he had a story about a foreign affair. And then um, and then me, was the it, Blue Valentine. Was Oh, that's you. That's a good mm-hmm. record. That's the one with he's like a, on a car in the front. Oh, greased up. With a girl? Yeah, with a girl, yeah. I wonder who she is. Is it you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to go look at that cover now. <laughs> well, now, did, it, it seems to me that that must have been, like, you, you strike me at that time, at least in that, in my mind, and in, in my view or my fantasy of it, it, it seemed to all make sense. Was there a scene around you guys? Was there, were there people, did he have fans? Did you have fans? Was there a world where people- I didn't have fans. I was unknown. He had a scene that grew all around him. He's a charismatic character and all of the people were drawn to him. He'd have fans sleeping in front of his lawn. He was very cruel to them, Mm. um, boy or girl. Mm. They were drawn to him as if I, it was hard to see, you know, whatever the meaning of fame is or his music. They traveled across the country to be near him, and he'd say, get the fuck out of here. Right. Um, because, Chuck explained, if you don't do that, they'll stay, and they got to go. Right. But I thought they were exceedingly cruel. Mm. And... Um, but they, you know, as we know, they can be dangerous. Who knows what sure. they what they come seeking? But to be clear, it wasn't our scene; it was his scene. Mm. But yeah. like he was, you guys were sort of on and off, but kind of together when the first album came out. When your first album came out, we were totally on. Yeah, um, yeah, we were uh, around Saturday Night Live that night. I'd say we started dating again, and 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 until the tour end of my tour. And that fateful night when we didn't see each other ever again. Really? Ever again? To this day? That's sad. Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. After a certain... Yeah, you know, that's one thing you realize as you get older. It's like, why are we... What? I mean, we're... At some point about uh, the year of the Los Angeles riots, I said... Let's say hello. We we have history. We're part of history. Just be friends. Yeah. He just his wife wouldn't let me in, and she's right, really. She's like, really. Okay, okay. Wow. So, um, whatever it is, you know, I'm not. I it's I my presence is so loud that they don't want me near, you know, they hadn't found any neutrality where, yeah, so welcome, nice to see you, come in and sit. And I I couldn't understand how they could have hit the jackpot and had family and children and money and success and love and couldn't extend this, uh, hey, Ricky Lee, Yeah. great to see you. It's weird. And it made me think, unfortunately, I must have remained a living um, sore somehow that they didn't let down because I don't want to have a sore. I'll, I'll go out of my way to say, yeah. hey, right. peace, right. you know. Yeah, that's something. But, you know, you, you definitely transcended and you kept moving forward and you did a lot of great music. 
And it's long ago. It's it, it's it's little kid stuff for well seasoned older people, and I think it belongs in the in the beautiful pages of of history. And and uh, it's nothing between us. We knew each other many many years ago sure. and fell in love hard. And that should be something like, wow, wasn't that wonderful? Right, that we right. Were? But uh, I guess it wasn't. Well, it's a weird thing about people and their past and, and what people protect. And, and, you know, like I think sometimes with that stuff, it's like whether you're the partner of somebody that has that experience with somebody else is that, you know, what you had was pure and what you saw was a vulnerability that no longer exists. That's for sure. Right. So it's almost like you have a secret whether you want it or not. And how people, you know, react to knowing yeah. that. Who the fuck knows, right? Yeah, I figured they probably had to spend a few years getting over the rumor of Ricky Lee Jones. Mm. So they go, you know, they go to do an interview. Are you guys, I know I did. I, I still hear about Tom Wichita. So for some years, before they forbid the mention of my name, people must have said, do you see Ricky Lee Jones? Da, 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 da. Right. And the wife was like, fuck you, if I hear her name again. <laughs> you know, so you can imagine what, went on yeah, yeah. i i have sympathy for it but i just thought it's so ungenerous not not to give love wherever you can sure and to, and to, and to be able to share some memories you know i mean jesus christ yeah. that's it that was a big time man it was a big time <laughs> so but we're old now yeah everybody's <laughs> getting old it's like it's interesting to listen to like jump in and out of some of the the evolution of the records because you know i was even like i was listening a little to uh to uh, traffic from from paradise and like you know the musicians on that record the the people that would you know come and work with you in the studio was sort of amazing i i really think like i was just listening to you know that song to rebel rebel and uh-huh. I, I honestly i don't think brian setzer has has ever played as honestly as on that fucking song oh my god <laughs> it was incredible it was the most sexual guitar playing I've ever heard. It was crazy because he's such a flashy kind of dude. He can do anything, but you got him dirty somehow. I don't know how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, He played a great big guitar and he just, you know, maybe because it was, I was doing it so raw, Mm, you know, and maybe he doesn't do acoustic stuff. So sometimes that'll bring something different out in people. But I love that you said that because I think his guitar playing is incredible on that. It's, 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 uh, it's unique for for him to play like that. And, you know, cause he's such a, he's such a virtuoso and he's so kind of meticulous and to hear him sort of break open a little bit and be, and be a little, a little greasy, a little dirty, you know, a little raunchy. I was like, wow, that's something. But that's how he started. You know, Levi and the Rockets and Stray Cats were the two rockabilly bands vying for the crown in 1978 and 79. Levi and the Rockets were British, totally tatted out, a little punk rock, but mostly um, um, rocket rocking, right? So, mm. Um, I'm glad that Brian and the Stray Cats, uh, you know, because he's so good looking, I guess. But when they first started out, they were raw. They were tough. Yeah, they were. Yeah, it was. It's like I, I don't know that I ever, you know, heard it, you know, or paid attention to it like I did uh, in, in sort of, you know, getting ready to talk to you. And I like these. Like, I mean, some of the ca- the covers are really interesting. The covers that you pick. I mean, that version, like Sympathy for the Devil is like the, one of the most important songs ever written, and you really made it your own. That's not easy. 
Because I thought, uh, this is just a blues song, and nobody's ever just done it like a blues song with an acoustic guitar. But more importantly, it's about evil, total evil. Somebody who laughs as he kills young girls right. and takes all your money. And I maybe mean, anybody ever listen to the lyrics because we're so busy going, woo, woo. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're not listening yeah, yeah, to yeah. what this devil is doing. So um, Ben Harper produced that. And it's, you know, it's a little slower I mean, I did that, but but if I do it live, it's a little faster now because I always start out a little slow. But um, but I loved the chance to um, show people the other sides of songs that they don't notice. So you got off drugs in the seventies, late seventies. I took heroin from nineteen eighty, more or less. Yeah flirting with it the year before yeah. <laughs> to 1982, flirting with it for a year afterwards. So I think I really, I took dope about three years. And if you're being really honest for, though I'm never that honest. Oh my God. Well, you, you, you're, you were lucky to get out. Yes, I was. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't like that. I know people, people who get off of that, they never, they never quite get completely re- configured you know <laughs> it's always it's a tough one yeah, if you stay in there too long the thing that i kept this safety all the time where was it i said i'll never go on stage high i'll never do certain things and if you can keep that you've kept just a modicum of control right right and you can use that like that never-ending story, that little piece of sand, to, to build a new reality when you finally get out. Um, I never got high with people. I always only got high alone. Mm. Um, and I felt like that was going to give me the power when I was ready to go out alone. Mm. If I made it a social thing, it was going to be much, much harder to, um, to leave it. And as we know, the, the the psychological part is is so much harder than the physical part. Mm. But it's not, you know, once you do it and you get a few years, it's just a thing. It's not a moral thing. You didn't rape anybody. You didn't kill anybody. You just, you know, took drugs yeah. for a while. <laughs> What's the big deal? Who cares? Yeah. And you made it through. <laughs> and you, and so, like, when? How old's your daughter now? Thirty three. Wow. <laughs> did when 33? Did you ever see when you were younger, did you ever think you were going to have kids? You know, in my if you asked me in my 20s, I would have said I don't really relate to kids. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't have I might have hoped I would, but I couldn't imagine myself as a parent. Right. And and how did it change your life? Well, I, it makes one must think about another person before one thinks of oneself. And that's not in our nature till we have a child. And then that's in our nature. So it's so life changing and transforming that you can say the words, but unless it happens to you, you can't know what it really is to have instinct to protect another before yourself take over. And, and in my case, it was life saving because everything was about me, 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 me. So... I was able to make it. Oh, it's about you, you, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She turned out okay. She, it's a work in progress. 
So we'll see as the future comes. But I adore her. Oh, that's good. That's good. And I and the book is really a, I think a great a, a great testament to your talent, to your life, and and to you know your story. I think it's uh it's so nice that you actually were able to have that you're at you were a writer before you wrote the book, you know, and you knew you wanted to write it yourself. What was the experience with the editor? Did he when you were turning in draft? Uh, my editor was uh, is a woman. Well, the I had an editor toward the end who actually helped me put the book in order, but it was hard for them. You know, they wanted a traditional memoir. Um, they wanted to start the book with Saturday Night Live. Uh. And um, was like, but don't you get it? I'm, <laughs> what about my mom? And I'm telling this bigger story. There's an arc of a grit. And they, they didn't get it. And that was a struggle. That was really, really hard. It was hard for them, hard for me. And it took, um, and I almost gave up, to be honest. Then I met this friend here in New Orleans who read the book and he said, you've got a doozy here. You just need to straighten it up a little bit and do some editing and da 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 da. And just to have one person say, I get it, mm. I see it, it was like, okay. I'll keep trying. <laughs> yeah. With that, if I hadn't had that one person, I don't know if uh, if I would have kept trying to write it. Well, I mean, it's it's weird because a lot of people that write memoirs, I think, especially from rock or, or music, I guess editors assume like, well, this is it's a redemption story, and they lived and they survived. Let's just get to the good part and the drugs and whatever and the good st- right. and the good stories. Right. But I think that if somebody really kind of took the weight of your songwriting and and your vision in general, they would have realized that you're like you've always been a writer. <laughs> Exactly. And I'm always going to innovate in anything I do. It's just my nature. And to their credit, you know, they eventually came around. I think by the, when they got the book, they, when they received the book, finally, they got it. And they're so proud. They're like proud parents. (laughs) And that's okay. You know, they're so proud of the book and the good notices. And I'm glad that I'm glad to have their courage oh good well great job and great job uh, surviving and being you and being an original artist and it was a pleasure talking to you thanks for making it fun oh good you got it (laughs) take care of yourself ricky lee all right thanks for you too ricky lee jones wow survivor man real survivor her book last chance texaco is available wherever you get your uh, wherever you get your books, and if you want to hear her tell it, tell the story, read the book. She reads it. She reads the audiobook version. So that's uh, that would be great. I'm gonna play my Stratocaster. Thank you. 
Boomer lives. Monkey, LaFonda. Ooh, cat angels everywhere. I think one just texted me. 